break the cycle. You and me. What a depressing song for a Friday. Good morning to you. My name is Andrew Levy. Thank you for listening to and tuning into cliffcentral.com. Uh, thanks to Gareth and the gang back again Monday, six to nine as always. Hey, listen, if you just uh, joined the show, we're speaking to world-renowned photographer uh, Zhao Silva. He's just released an incredible exhibition here in Johannesburg. We're going to be speaking to him about his early life, about the days that were in apartheid, about Afghanistan, about Iraq, about all the different wars that this gentleman has seen uh, throughout his lifetime. He is probably the most talented photographer South Africa has seen and produced. Uh, Zhao Silva is a living legend, although he'd probably call himself nothing more than doing his job. He spent more time in wars than probably at home and has felt the effects of war, not only mentally but physically as well. He's lost his legs due to a landmine in October 2010, and today I get to spend an entire hour with this legend who has documented the worst moments in human history. Give us a call if you want to speak to Zhao, 0861-555-189, or tweet us at Yebo underscore Levy, L-E-V-Y, or at cliffcentral.com. This is the Zhao Silver Show. With breaking news from South Africa, there has been a huge explosion in downtown Johannesburg near the ANC headquarters. A number of people have been in injured. But once again, the campaign was dogged by violence. They were supposed to be a neutral body for stability. Keeping troops were unable to stop a deadly gun battle between backers of Nkata and the African National Congress. The battle between Zulus and so-called township self-defense units from the ANC caught them in a deadly crossfire. It was apparently a car bombing that was caused uh, that caused a huge explosion. We saw people literally being killed in front of us. Democracy came and South Africa was a free country in 1994. But for me personally, I witnessed all this. I lost three friends in 1994. Joel Silver lost his legs on October 23rd, 2010. He'd been embedded with the U.S. Army in Kandahar. I, I remember hearing ting, and I knew, oh shit. And within a split second, I was face down. But having heard that thing, I knew, not good. As they dropped me on the ground, before the medics started working on me, I tried to take some pictures. I could see my legs were gone. I tried to take some pictures, but my hand hurt, so I dropped the camera. Is it worth it? Was it worth losing my legs? I don't have the answer for that one yet. I look forward to picking up a camera again and resuming photography, resuming... Um, documenting the world around me as I see it you know all that kind of stuff and so it you know it, you know it goes through the head through the lens and it, it, it burns itself into your into your cranium and it stays there you know it's it's there forever it doesn't go away but it helps to it helps to have understanding why you do it and once you have that kind of clarity it does make it easier to just have an understanding of what actually is happening around you I mean you are recording history you are trying to take a message out to, to the world, you're trying to um, <coughs> show the realities of war to people who are fortunate enough not to live in a war zone. Zhao Silva, good morning to you, welcome to the show. Uh, it is an absolute honor to have you in the studio. You are a personal, personal hero. Um, welcome, mate. Thank you very much, and thank you for that kind introduction. introduction. Uh, you know, we try here. Yeah, thank you, yeah. <laughs> so, Zhao, tell us a little bit about, mm -hmm. I mean, we want to talk uh, about your life from beginning to end. And I think it's a very different space. You know, like we see legends like yourself in photography who've been around the block, the block for a while. And we think, oh, it's so simple. You started on an iPhone. It was a digital DSLR. But it is so. it was so much more difficult to get into the field of photography back then. Tell us, how did you get into this, this world it, it, it was very different um, in terms of my photographic beginnings um, I'd, we didn't have a camera in the family I didn't go up in a picture orientated family my dad never owned the camera photography pretty much just came out of the blue a friend of mine was uh, studying graphic design at, uh, at uh, Vol Technicon which is now Vol University and um, one of his subjects was photography and on a particular day, he had to capture motion. So he came and hung out with us at Kalami, um, watching motorcycles and race cars go around. And uh, he, he photographed his project on that day. And that was it. Um, I'd already negotiated the day before that I could try to take a few pictures of his camera. He obviously agreed. I put two rolls of film. It was all film back then. Uh, two rolls of film. And um, and that was it. That was the first pictures that I shot. And at the end of the day, in my mind, I was already a photojournalist. I, I already knew that 
You were telling people around the Kyle Lobby racetrack. I, I knew, I knew, I just knew. Somehow it's like a light switch, and I knew that I was going that uh, this I was going to dedicate my life to this, and um, and then I just started consuming as much literature as I could on on, on the subject matter, and um, I did a short introductory course at Vault Technicon back then, um, just to learn how to print and process black and white film. Just to give you the foundations which you need. Because it is a process, isn't it? You yeah. know, when, when you had to uh, go into the dark room and you've got to use chemicals and all that yeah, jazz. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you use chemicals in the initial process, which is to develop the film, and then you use chemicals again when actually, you know, you make your final print onto silver light paper, which is what, you know, the photography process was back then. Um, again, not rocket science, but yeah, you know, it, it does the East technique and, uh, and a certain understanding is required. And then that was it. And from that point onwards, you know, um, even as I was doing this little short course and consuming as much literature as I could, I was already being, getting myself published. Um, there used to be a knock-and-drop newspaper, which I assume is still around in Ferenigheim, which is where I grew up, called the Volster. And I used to read the upcoming events, Rotary or some sort of school fair, whatever the case may be, and not document those and then sell the pictures back to them. Um, so that's how I first got published. That's how I first got my name in print. But um, you couldn't sustain it. There was no way to make a living from that. You know, it was a small knock and drop newspaper back then. They probably pay me twenty rand the print or something. You know, so there's no way to survive. So I moved up to Joburg and um, tried to kick off my career in um, in in the mainstream. And um, that proved difficult because you know there was a lot of good newspapers, but there was also a lot of great photographers, and and the market was somewhat saturated. It still is. It will always remain saturated mm. because we produce more photographers every year than we have available slots. Yeah. For. But um, so, yeah, I hung around for a while and almost starved and uh, eventually took um, a job with, uh, again, a community newspaper called the Alberton Record, which was part of the Caxton Group. And, uh, you know, my functions then were to um, to write and photograph. There was no, you know, there was no... Uh, Jack of all trades. Yeah, huh? that's pretty much what you own, those small newspapers. And um, But it all coincided with the... Um, Political violence, which kicked off in um, in the 1990s, um, early 91s, um, post you know post the release of our former president Nelson Mandela and the unbanning of political parties. So it was all happening right there. That Tukosa became one of the first places in the in in the reef, as it was called back then, to 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 actually explode, and uh, and it was right there. And so I started documenting that in my own time. Um, and eventually I even convinced the paper to do something and actually publish what was going on. And they did to their credit because back then, you know, um, what went through, what happened in the black communities, like Tukosa, for instance, you know, were, those newspapers were focusing on the white community, you know, on Alberton itself. So there was really... Um, Alberton no and the Rotary, the Rotary Weekend Special. The Rotary special, Weekend huh? Specials <laughs> and the SPCA, you know, all that kind of stuff, which was fine. I mean... Uh, there's no shame in doing it. You do what you got to do. But uh, yeah, it all coincided with the, the violence kicking off, and I started documenting it. And, and that was it. From there, things just picked up momentum, and I eventually started freelancing for Reuters. Um, from that point onwards. Slow down, Joe. We'll get there. We'll get there. Slow down. Slow down. You're, you're taking away my it's story. A <laughs> We hang out with uh, Zhao Silva. If you don't know who he is, check out uh, our Twitter. We're just putting a, a whole bunch of articles on Zhao Silva. That's J O A O S I L V A. Um, at Yebo underscore Levy, L E V Y. Check out uh, the details of this man. We'll also be putting up some of his photos as well throughout the show. 0861 if you want to speak to him as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This guy is an absolute icon in the photo world and uh, in the world in general. Zhao, I mean, you spoke about the fact that there were all these uprisings, uh, you know, circa 1991. Was there a feeling of a social conscious within you growing up? Did you, you know, you're growing up in apartheid, you're, you're, you're from a Portuguese community. Was it like, should you were worried about what was happening in, uh, yeah. on the other side of the world? Or was it just that these were the events and you needed to shoot them? No, look, you got to understand, or at least have some understanding of the kind of upbringing that I had. Uh, being an immigrant in South Africa was... A very strange experience, to say the least. You know, um, we came. My parents came to South Africa at a time when all the Portuguese colonies were disintegrating, um, and as a result, civil wars were kicking off both in Mozambique and Angola. And uh, like many Portuguese, they relocated to South Africa, being the nearest country. And not only that, it, there was 
a um, you know the apartheid government acti- act- actively pursued or invited expats from foreign countries to come to South Africa to elevate the numbers of the white population. That was that was a fact. But you were never really considered to be part of the nation. You know, um, the first time I ever heard the K word, it was directed at me as a ten year old kid because they used to call the Portuguese the CKs. You know, <laughs> I don't want to say the word on air because <laughs> it's not a nice word. But uh, you know, we were the C C dogs to, for a better term and. Uh, and it was very clear that you didn't really belong, you know, that you were different. You were not Afrikaans. You were not of the elite. So that was a strange place to be. And um, and that's how I came to understand the level of racism in South Africa because from that point on, there was a certain amount of awakening. There wasn't a political awakening. That came much later. That came much later when, you know, I first picked up my camera and went and explored the world. But I knew something was off kilter. And um, so... Yeah, I guess it was it was different. You you felt like you didn't belong, and um, around the time when um, when the unbanning of the political parties and there was the sense that something bigger was coming, something bigger than us, you know. And collectively, with our cameras and with what we wrote, and you know, it was produced on television and all that kind of, we the media were contributing towards that, mm. and there was a feeling that you belonged. You belonged to something that was finally coming, something bigger than you, something, something bigger than the nation, you know. And um, so that, that was quite a special feeling that I think will only exist once. You know, you, it's not only it's beyond patriotism; it's 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 a lot more. And, humanitarianism, um, I suppose. Well, and, yeah. Well, part activist, part humanitarian. Uh, patriotism, of course, because you know you you want a unified South Africa. Um, so yeah, so it was it was an interesting time. It was a time that only came once, and it will you know it's never going to happen again. And uh, I was very privileged to be part of that and to to be around to document it and contribute in that manner. Because ultimately, being a photojournalist, that's what I do. You know, I bear mm. witness, and by bearing witness, my pictures either educate or or not, whatever the case may be. But that's a different debate. Well, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about when you when you first went into your. Uh, first conflict situation um, during this this 1990 period. Of course, we had uh, the ANC and in Carter backed by a yeah. third force in South Africa. Um, major turbulent times, specifically in the Johannesburg townships as well as KwaZulu Natal. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of talk around Tokozo as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your first conflict situation, right. and and how did you? I mean, you just did you just arrive and be like, right, this is what I need to do now, or were you were you tense? Were you were you scared? Were you worried? Who were you with? Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, um, yeah, that's a lot of questions in one. <laughs> <laughs> me, sorry, uh, Jean, no, no, that's sorry. fine. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> let me let me start. Um, you know, initially, this ANC Inkata thing wasn't really clear. You know, when it first kicked off, if I remember correctly, and my memory is all screwed up, but it, it was initially labeled as uh, taxi violence, some sort of taxi dispute that was kicking off in the Polar Park area of Tukosa. And, uh, but that escalated to the point where it became clear that there was, you know, you know, something else was brewing. And I think that's when I first went out there. And, um, I mean, you know, it was a conflict situation in the, in the sense that I was covering the aftermath of the violence that happened overnight. So, you know, I was, docu- I was photographing corpses lying outside shacks and that kind of stuff. Um, and so that would have been probably the first time, you know, and there was no real clear understanding what was happening, you know. Well, you know, Of course, you know, Mandela's free and ANC's been unbanned and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, where, what's actually brewing here? Something was going on. And, uh, you know, very quickly it became clear what was going on. And... Um, you know, I mean, it's like anything else. There are a certain amount of uncertainty with everything, you know. It's like you take that first step, and once you've taken that first step, then you think, okay, well, maybe I'll take the next step. Um, and it's always taking that first step that, you know, you overcome that initial fear. But, you know, doing what I did for so many years, you know, it's it's not an absence of fear. You know, we're all human, and, you know, fear is important in every level. It keeps you alive. It keeps you awake. It, it keeps you... Thinking, it makes you think clear in those kind of situations because you know there's a heightened sense of everything. Everything becomes crystal clear in a way. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess that's you know that's that's uh, long story short, but that's pretty much what it was. But of course, there had been that the very first time. You know, I'm going into this township. I've been in townships many times before, of course, but um, never in that kind of situation where there'd been you know violence. You know, so it was. Um, 
yeah, there was a certain amount of anxiety, no doubt. Hang out with uh, Zhao Silva, uh, world-acclaimed uh, photojournalist. We'll be speaking to him a little bit more about his journey through the apartheid, the Bang Bang Club, as, uh, as well as a whole bunch of, of other things, uh, his war, his recent war exp- ex- expeditions, I suppose you call them, um, and, and more about this incredible, incredible man. You hang out with cliffcentral.com. It is Friday at 22 minutes past nine. Good morning. It's Lauren Hill on uh, cliffcentral.com. We hang out with uh, Zhao Silva. If you've just joined uh, the show, 0861-555-189. If you want to speak to this amazing photojournalist, you can also tweet us at Yebo underscore L-E-V-Y. Um, we just put up a link to uh, some of Zhao's work um, over the past uh, couple of years. And um, Zhao, I mean, you, you now work for the New York Times, which is... It, it's as good as it gets, basically, for uh, for any photojournalist. Um, you've been doing a whole bunch of stuff. You've worked with a number of different people from all sorts 
uh, of different fields, and they all keep saying the same thing. Um, so I'm, I, I invited some of them to come talk to you uh, about their experiences with Zhao Silva. First is, is John Hogg, and uh, th- this guy is super interesting. He, his biography is kind of nuts. Uh, John, good morning to you. Morning, hi. Hey, how are you doing? Good and you. Good, good, good. You are with uh, Jao Silva uh, on cliffcentral.com at the moment. Uh, tell us or recount a story about Jao the man here, because he never talks about himself, so we have to get other people to talk about him. Um, yeah, geez, I, you know, I don't know any, I don't have any specific stories, and I've known Jao for quite a while. The only one I can think of is when I first met him when he was starting out, um, I was photographing cricket in Kurenichung and he was running around there with a totally inadequate lens <laughs> um, for the local paper. You know, it, was, it was in the 1980s, the end of the 80s. And it was the first time I met John and from then he, he ended up at, I think, the Saturday, the Sunday Star and that sort of thing. But he, yeah, um, you know, I didn't put him off. He, uh, he's obviously always been like that. He just did what he could with what he had and got something out of it, yeah. And John, I mean, you're a photographer yourself. Looking at the history of of Zhao, um, does does this guy inspire you? Yes. Look, I mean, you, you know what uh, he he does in a way, and I think in his own quiet way, he kind of inspires and gives people perspective. Maybe it's not a it's not an inspirational thing, but more a perspective thing because you know some guys you, you get caught up in the own little world and. Their problems seem really big, and you know, Zhao's seen big problems, and he kind of gives people perspective in the way of saying, you know, that's not that that's just that's nothing really. You know, don't get worked up about it. Look at these things. Look at the positive things as well. And it, it, yeah, I think he helps give a lot of people perspective, and you know, he's inspirational in that way that he is. Um, is you know, he, he's one of the top guys in the world of what he does. And but he he doesn't have the ego of a rock star, which does happen to people when they get to that. He's a humble, pragmatic person, you know, and he just helps give people perspective. John Hogg, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, we've got ear to ear like smiles over here in in the studio. Um, Jao, a lot of people have worked with you. I mean, you were part of of what's known now as as the Bang Bang Club, the Bang Bang Four. Um, We've just posted a link on uh, on Twitter to the book. So if you want to buy the book and see the history of photojournalism from Zhao Silva and some others' perspective, then you've got to check out that book. It is super, super interesting. Lots of interesting images. Um, but tell me what it was like to be part of, of the Bang Bang Club. How did that form? Okay, well, firstly, Johnny, nice of you. Very kind. Um, appreciate the kind words. As for the Bang Bang Club, you know, there was no such thing. That entity never existed. It, it was a title given to an article uh, that focused on the photographers covering the violence back then. It was myself, Greg Marinovich, and Johan Kies. The article was on three of us. Um, what did happen soon after is that uh, as a result of the article and subsequent articles, it picked up momentum. And, um, you know, people started referring to us as the Bang Bang Club. Um, but... There was no such thing. There was never a club. And uh, it was never just simply the four of us as it's been portrayed mm. in the movie, for instance. Um, there was people that came in and out of our lives. You know, foreigners would arrive and cruise with us. Even locally, South Africa, there'd be not just us. There'd be, you know, Gary Bernard. There'd be, uh, God, I mean, there's so many people that used to cruise with us. Mike Nicola. I mean, it. The list is endless, actually, mm. you know, just depending who was doing what on a particular day. But, uh, you know, humans like labels, so it's stuck. And one of the myths, we, one, of the th- one of the things we tried to do when Greg and I sat down and started working on the book was to try to dispel that myth, you know, to try to bring some perspective to it. And we do. We make it very clear in the book. Um, the irony is that the book got titled The Bang Bang Club, which wasn't what we wanted. Both Greg and I had a very different title. The original title of the book was The Dead Zone, referring to the communities that were immediately surrounding the hostels, which were abandoned very early on in the 90s for fear of violence because uh, the different uh, MPs would, you know, 
deploy out of the hostel and immediately purge the community surrounding them. So if you're a causer, vendor, whatever the case may be, you got killed. So what happened is these neighborhoods were abandoned and they became dead zones. They became, they looked like Rosny. They looked like any war zone across the world. You know, the roofs were missing, window frames missing, doors missing, overgrown streets, you know, the rubble everywhere. And, um, and that's where a lot of the fighting took place. So hence the dead zone. And that was the original title of the book. But, uh, you know, it's not sexy enough. And um, we eventually capitulated and uh, gave in to the publishers and agreed to go with the Bang Bang Club as a title. But that was not the original title of the book. bastards. Well, you know, it, it is what it is. But uh, And then there was a movie made, which is utter garbage. So, you know... <laughs> So, so and so we go. So the myth the myth continues. But I, I didn't even not, want to talk about it's it. It's not true, you know. I mean, yeah. It's not it's it's not the way it's been made out to be uh in pop culture and it's become part of that, which is kinda sad. I love this guy's honesty. The movie is utter rubbish. A lot of people phoning in oh eight six one five 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 one eight nine wanna talk to Zhao uh, or send us a tweet at Yebo underscore Levy L E V Y or at cliffcentral.com uh, some uh, journalists who are not photojournalists but uh, did work with you in the townships or, or walked with you at least through the path uh, Deborah Patter Deborah good morning to you morning so you uh, you were a, a young journalist a woman journalist uh, walking the streets of townships in uh, in that period of, of 1990 to 1994 um, did you find solace when you, when you found the likes of Zhao Silva there did it make it a little bit more That's easy not, I'm not we did find solace because they were the ones at the front line running into the danger. I was trying to hide behind my car, pick out my microphone. I was in radio in those days and hope for the best. So when you saw Joao and Greg and Ken and any of those people, it was always a bit anxiety making. But there was a kind of a symbiotic relationship because I was working at 702. We spent a lot of time in the townships and covering the same issues that Joao's been talking about. They would listen to us. They would get alerts from us. We would get alerts from them. Um, and it, it, just, it did. I mean, there was a sense of security of just knowing that there were other people there. Obviously, we know that that wasn't the case. Yeah, is um, pointing my finger at me and saying that's an abs- absolute yeah, lie. I, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you, Deborah, because you're just being way too modest. Uh, for the listeners, Deborah's probably one of the most bravest people I know. And, uh, yeah, she was definitely out there on the edge when we were, so... You're being too modest, Deborah. But it was always nice to see you out there because <laughs> but it was t- always nice to see a friendly face, you know. <laughs> she is doing some, some um, positive affirmations here. Uh, you know, Joao, I think Joao was always there. Wherever you went, Joao was there. There he was, silent in the background, always a nice word, always a smile, incredibly calm under pressure. You know, I'd be quaking and terrified, Joao would be calm. Um, and he always managed to get the action because you had to. But what he also did was manage to get, capture something else with a sort of humanity, um, whether it was the pain, the joy, the terror, whatever it was, um, through not just violent images, but other images of, of sort of heartbreaking, wrenching scenes capturing those dying days of apartheid. And I think that's what's particularly profound about Schwab's work. But what hasn't been said, I, I didn't fully hear what John was saying when he was talking earlier, is that above all, Schwab's probably one of the nicest people I know. And you can't say that about many people in our profession. It's a cutthroat profession. There's a lot of professional jealousy, a lot of envy. Um, and Joao's just one of those guys who is generous. And I think that, that speaks volumes um, in terms of, you know, who, who a person is and, and the kind of impact that they have. It's not just that he's exceptionally talented. He carries that talent so well and shares it so well and is generous with other people. Um, and that's why, I mean, he's a legend in, in our world. Deborah, thank you so much for sharing. You took care, Deborah. Thank you. That was Deborah Patter, a world-renowned journalist, I suppose, also South African, proudly South African, talking about this man. I think that's the thing, you know, like photographers often get, uh, and videographers often uh, don't get the, the, the spotlight like the, the journalists do, like the correspondents do. But, I mean, some of the pictures that, that we see um, from Jean's work, specifically in the 1990s, I mean, you're dead in the action there. I mean, you're right there. You, you're, you're meters away from from the reality, which is which was horrific at the time. No, absolutely. Um, but, you know, it's important to, to understand that I wasn't the only one. You know, the, when you go through the annals that exist now of modern, of, of, you know, the Bang Bang Club history and all that kind of stuff, it makes it sound as if 
we were the only unique people out there doing this. No, it's not true. There were there were hundreds of us, and I was not the only one witnessing that kind of horrific, um, you know, blatant murder right in front of the camera. I was not the only one. There were many of us who witnessed, and um, you know, after the state of emergency in this country, where you you could not venture into a township, you could not work. When the 1990 came around, things changed. Things did a uh, you know complete turnaround. To suddenly you could pretty much photograph whatever you wanted. We went from not being able to to complete you know you know photo anarchy if you want to call it that, <laughs> and you could document everything, which was important at the time because we did show the reality of what was going on on the ground. But you know the camera, you only you can only really document what you see. But there's always more to it, you know. It's the 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 image is never the definitive truth of anything. It is what it is, but there's always context to it, mm. and there's always more to it. There's always more information which you're not aware of, and in the con, you know, taking us back to that period, we got to see a lot of stuff. We got to witness a lot of horrific things, but it was only, you know, a fraction of what was going on in the country. We had no idea. I mean, the stuff that came out in the TRC and all that. I mean. We thought we had a pulse in it, but we didn't. We were so far off, mm. which is kind of embarrassing now, you know, because, yeah, you know, we we had no clue. Even though we were out there every single day or as much as we could, we had really no clue what was going on. Something that has always interested me about photojournalism and specifically conflict and war journalism is is that moment after, you know, you've taken this incredible picture, um, the Boy Patong pictures that you took, um, uh, the, the Tokozo um Hostile pictures that you that you shot. What happens after that? You know, when, in the afternoon or in the evening, when you when you when you finish up and you, you've put your camera away, and you you go home, is it is a situation of because at that time it was film, um, probably the beginnings of digital. So, the idea of are you excited to check out your work because you knew that frame thirty four was absolutely mm. unbelievable, or are you just like flip? I need to get out. Of here. I need to get a drink because this is just. It's unbelievable. I think it's 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 a combination of all those factors. You know, as a professional, you are curious as to what you've photographed, it's because you know this was way in the early nineties was before we even dreamt of digital. You know, it was all very much film, and for the most of us, black and white film. Mm. Um, so yeah, there is that curiosity. What did I get? But then there's also the adrenaline rush. There's also the the you know elated for having survived because most of these situations can be pretty hairy. Not always. Sometimes you get to document the most craziest things without actually, uh, you know, being any danger yourself. But in many cases, you are in direct danger. So, um, and then, yeah, definitely dying for a drink at some point. <laughs> no doubt. I mean, and, you know, back in the days at the store, we had the, the Liz, which was just across the road. And that was, you know, a great pub where, you know, all the journalists used to hang out. It was a great place. And uh, so there was always that. And, and then at some point there is a time of reflection. You know, at some point there is a time where you sit back and you, you, you process everything that you've just witnessed. You know, I used to often maintain that in order for me to have a good day photographically, somebody would be having a very shitty day. Mm. So you got to put it in that perspective. You got to kind of take it in and understand that these are people that you've documented. You know, somebody's life has been, you know, extinguished right there as you press that shutter or during the process of pressing that shutter. So it's, um, it's a mindfuck, yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, there's there's tons of stories of of exactly what you're talking about. It's horrific, absolutely horrific. Um, both in in apartheid and, and that period, just before democracy, and in the wars that you've created. I mean, one of uh, one of the moments that I think there was a lot of talk about was the Kevin Carter Sudanese image. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you were there in Sudan um, photographing the the famine at the time. Mm-hmm. And just to give the listeners who, who don't know what I'm talking about a, a kind of perspective, um, there's a a boy who who is heavily heavily underfed um, in the midst of a famine, and there he's tiny. I mean, he's absolutely tiny. And there's a vulture, and it feels like you get the sense the narrative is that the vulture is stalking this little boy, waiting for him to pass. Um, and there was a lot of uproar from people that weren't there that didn't know what the story was about the ethics of taking these images and so on 
What is the ethics in terms of war photography? You know, when you are in these zones, when you're seeing the stuff and you're the observer. I mean, yeah. do you feel like you need to get involved? Do you, do you feel like you have to get involved sometimes? Or is it a situation of saying, I've got to know what my job is here, what my, my role is? Well, um, it's, again, it's all of the above. You know, none of, none of these questions have a single one with answer. You know, these are all very complex situations. Again, because we're going back to people's lives. There are real lives that exist here. You know, as a journalist, you will intervene. We have. I've, I've ferried casualties. I've done all sorts. Yes, we do intervene. But that is not our primary role. Our primary role is to witness, is to document, to bear witness. So there is a document of people suffering that, you know, the world can learn from it and potentially not let it happen again. So, yeah, I mean, it's ultimately it, it, it goes down to how much you as a human being can tolerate and at what point do you decide you, you can't document anymore and you've got to put a camera down and help. Um, in Kevin's case, you know, there was, there was no help needed. We, um, you know, the thing about photography is that the child and the, the, and the child and the vulture are isolate, isolated in a frame and it's shot with a long, long lens so it decompresses, it compresses the background mm. and therefore you, 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 think you it's get close, the sense yeah. that this child has been abandoned in the desert and this is what a lot of people read into the image. The truth of the matter was that to the right, if you're looking at the image, to the left of the child is a runway. Behind the child, in other words, as you are facing the camera, be, uh, facing the image, behind you was a feeding center with a little ICRC hospital. Mm. And then to the right of the child was, um, would have been the rest of the IDP camp. In fact, if you look closely at the image, you can see huts, straw huts in the background, totally out of focus in the frame. So the child was not abandoned. And what happens in this case is when the planes arrive with the food, because we, we came in on uh, Operation Lifeline Sudan, which was a, a, a wing of the United Nations, um, they were delivering food. We came in on a smaller plane. We, we kind of landed in tandem. And um, people put down the children, mothers mostly, to go and queue, to go rush for the food. Because, you know, it's quite frantic when, when those planes arrive because mm. people are desperate. I mean, it is a famine It's between life and death, yeah. As a result of a civil war. <clears throat> so the child was not abandoned. In fact, there was numerous child children that were put down, they were face down. Uh, I myself photographed other children in a very same position. Uh, with no vulture in the background. Um, so that's basically what happened. We'd landed. I'd, Kevin had never seen a famine before, so he was totally focused on documenting that. And I, I was on assignment for Newsweek, so I was more interested in going out. Well, the story was about the SPLA that had split into two. So I'd, I separated from Kevin. I went to go find out about front lines, where we could go. turned out we couldn't go anywhere. And by the time I got back to, Ke <laughs> to Kevin, Kevin was distraught, mm. having photographed this child with a vulture behind. Again, the child was not abandoned. And here's another interesting point. The child was not being stalked by the, the vulture. Um, I forget the, the name, but um, an expert got back to, to, to Greg and I after having read the book and all the controversy. And it turns out, expert on vultures, it turns out that that vulture, I forget the name, it, it feeds on feces. So it waits. If, so if, if they see humans squatting, they literally wait hmm. for the fresh poo to come out so they can eat it. Incredible. So Absolutely the child was incredible. never in danger. You know, the, this vulture specifically, that's, that's what it does. So it was just waiting, f assuming that the child was squatting to, to you know, vacate his bowels. And, um, you know, that was never the case in any of those things. So there's so many misconceptions around this image. But, of course, you know, thank God was before the age of Internet because Kevin was already totally distraught and traumatized by the whole thing. In the, age, in the age of internet, they've completely destroyed him because people just assume, people see the vulture, all these armchair critics, and then they crucify the photographer based on what they assume is going on. But, you know, people, and the biggest assumption was that we were walking along the desert, we came across this child, Kevin photographed it, we moved on, leaving the child behind, and uh, Kevin won a Pulitzer as a result, and, uh, but that was never the case. That was never the case. The child was never in any danger, and it was not abandoned. So our job in that in that situation was not to save. We are there to document, and secondly, the child did not need saving. So it's it's very clear in my mind. But uh, you know, it, it is still the greatest famine photograph ever made. And there's an interesting thing, which you know, um, I wish Kevin had known about it. But you know, Kevin's picture went all over the world. Um, at the time when Operation Lifeline Sudan flew us there, they they flew the journalists in because they needed. 
progress. There was uh, a certain amount of donor fatigue towards Africa. There was too many wars going on mm. around the world. You didn't understand it, right? You didn't understand it if, if you weren't there, if you weren't based in the, no, on the continent. Course. Yeah, but you know, donor fatigue being that, you know, usually a lot of money would come towards Africa, but it was being diverted elsewhere. But as a result of Kevin's picture, that changed. Suddenly, Operation Lifeline Sudan got more money than they knew what to do with as a result of this picture. So Kevin indirectly might not have picked up that child, but he saved so many people's lives by making that picture because suddenly there was money for people who needed it. There was influx of – there was more money coming into the people of southern Sudan who literally had nothing but rags on, 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 the, on, on their bodies, you know. So um, – yeah, so that's quite incredible, you know, and um, yeah, we should have <coughs> given it long enough to, to know that. All right, we're speaking to Jal Silva, international photojournalist, uh, about his career, about uh, different moments in his life, uh, not only his life, but his colleagues as well. Uh, if you want to see that picture of the vulture and the boy, I've just put it on Twitter, at Yebo underscore Levy, L-E-V-Y. Check out Kevin Carter's incredible work. What a photojournalist himself. Uh, we've got uh, Reuven Boshoff, who's been waiting patiently on the line. Thank you, Reuven, for waiting. You worked uh, with Zhao or uh, were part of, of that, that scene. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, um, I met Zhao and he came into the office. I was at that point um, a photographer at the Sunday Star. And yeah, it was very interesting times. Um, uh, really nice bunch of guys working together. Um, really healthy competition amongst all of us. And um, yeah, Zhao was very enthusiastic, you know, right from the beginning, um, which makes it fantastic to to, to have him, you know, um, on board. Tell me a little bit about um, Ruben. Just a moment where where Zhao brought calm to you, because that's what a lot of people are saying is that he was very relaxed in these conflict situations. Did you feel calm when you went out with 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 Zhao and shot uh, some photography? Yeah, you know, a lot of us would go on, um, say for instance, you know, when there was a bomb block. I didn't really spend that much time with, with Joe in the township together. You know, he worked very, you know, more close with Kevin and, and Ken, um, in the township. But at, you know, other new situations, um, yes, I think, you know, most of us, um, stayed very calm. Um, it's no use. You know, getting overexcited about things because you're going to miss things. Um, and Jai does have a very nice um, calmness about him. Um, you know, and you know, the most important thing is, is, is to, you know, to sometimes stand back a bit and sum um, up the situation that you're in. You know, other times you would just rush in, you can see exactly where, where the action is, and you'll go, you'll go straight there. You know, you won't. Stand around and start to work out, you know, where, where the best picture is. Ruben, thank you so much for sharing uh, your thoughts on Zhao Silva. Uh, Thanks, Put. Nice to hear from you. What Ruben didn't mention is that he was actually, he gave me my first job when I first started freelancing Johannesburg, having uh, kind of started to break away from Reuters. Ruben gave me my first job at the Star Group, where ultimately I became a star photographer. So, yeah, thanks for that, But <laughs> Reuven Bosch, <clears throat> your first job given to you by 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 Reuven, and and it's just incredible that everyone seems to be saying the same thing, Zhao. That you're just such an incredible guy. Um, not only are you super talented, but also unbelievably humble. And uh, I mean, everyone I meet says the same story. I think I think you're being too kind. I think you know I'm like anybody else. I'm probably more sinner than saint, you know. So. Um, but thank you for saying so. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm blushing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, you always speak about your time being up, you, you, your tickets uh, being numbered. Um, let's just talk a little bit about your overseas exploits. Um, when you got the call to go past South Africa, to go further than South Africa, was that nerve-wracking for you? I mean, you had a family at the time. No, I mean, you know, the first time I worked outside of South Africa was in the 90s. You know, I first went to, you know, Sudan. I covered the Angolan War, um, Somalia. And these are all 92s, you know, there about. The first time I went to Afghanistan was in 1994. Um, you know, so 
I'd already started branching off into international coverage. I knew that once the South African story was done, once you know peace came, that I would be moving on and focusing more on other international stories, which is ultimately what I did. And um, you know, before I joined the New York Times, I worked for AP. In fact, I covered. I left the star at the end of '93. I joined the Associated Press. In um, January '94, where I covered the elections for AP, and and then I worked on and off with AP up until I guess even in '97, I still did a couple of assignments for AP. But by then, <coughs> excuse me, by then I was pretty much really dedicating my time to the New York Times, where ultimately, you know, I ended up. But yeah, international, you know, my international career it was already you know happening in the '90s and. Uh, you know, 94 went to Afghanistan during the Civil War after the Soviets pulled out, and I fell in love with that country. And, um, you know, ironically, it's where I lost my legs. Well, let's, so let's talk about that. It's been a long relationship with, with, with Afghanistan. And, of course, you know, Iraq and many other places. Mm. But, yeah, those are just highlights, I guess. I mean, I remember over the wires that we were watching here in South Africa, 2010. Uh, obviously, everyone was excited for all sorts of different reasons. But uh, a very specific one came over. Kabul, Afghanistan, a photographer for the New York Times, was seriously injured when he stepped on a mine Saturday in Kandahar province. Um it was then later revealed that it was a South African photographer, and I suppose everyone kind of then knew it had to be Jao Silva because. No, I think the name was it. I think people knew immediately. The name went out on the wire. Yeah. There was no, there was no, um, you know, like with the military. If you're the military and you photograph a wounded, a wounded soldier, you have to wait until the family gets, you know, notified and all that kind of stuff. It's part of the embed rules that you sign when you, mm. when you join a unit to document whatever they're doing. Um, and in my case, you know, there was. You know, there was no need for that. You know, the New York Times put out a statement, so everybody knew. And, um, and what, what yeah, were you know. doing? What were you doing in Kandahar that day? I mean, what, no, what we was, was going I on? I was embedded with uh, um, a unit of the Fourth Infantry Division, Task Force One Six Six. We were in a little combat outpost, which is basically a house that gets fortified, and um, and that's where twenty American soldiers with twenty Afghan soldiers live. And from there, they deploy. And they patrol the area. There's no vehicle movement in that area. There's no vehicle access. Uh, that it's either helicopter or you walk. And on that particular morning was um, 7 a.m. Afghan time, 5 a.m. Joburg time. We had just stepped out of one combat outpost and we were moving towards another combat outpost. And we were obviously it was a dismounted patrol, so we were on foot. I was on point, meaning there's the guy right in front with the dog sniffing for whatever dangerous devices there might be. There's a guy walking behind him, you know, maybe a little bit double the distance from you and I, you know, say three meters, uh, following in his footsteps. And um, and then I was doing the same behind him. I was the third guy in line. Um, again, following in his footsteps. You follow each other's footsteps in case, you know, if he steps and doesn't go off, should be safe. And then, of course, the rest of the platoon was hunkered behind us all taking defensive positions while we cleared the road before the rest of the platoon could move on. And um, it was a particular was a, was a dangerous area. The night before, we'd found an IED in that very area, and we destroyed it in place. An IED being an improvised explosive device, homemade bomb. Mm. And um, so that's why we've been cautious there. And the guy with the dog turned into a compound, which was rubble. It was once upon a time somebody's home. Uh, that is, this is a very rural, very poor area. And uh, he went through with the dog. The guy providing security followed through. I waited until they got inside that compound area. There's no roof. It's just the rubble walls. And I figured, okay, well, they're in. They got through, okay. It's safe for me to go ahead. And that's when I'm following their steps. But they've really managed to get all the way through. I stepped. And as as you as you heard me explain earlier on in that recording, there was this f- slight, very faint, very faint, like metallic, metallical sound. And, uh, you know, immediately I was face down. Mm. I, don't, I don't remember hearing an actual sound of an explosion. But I was conscious throughout. And, you know, I, I rolled over. I asked for assistance. The guys who were with me, the guy with the dog and the guy providing security, were concussed from, from the blast. But they were okay. And together with an Afghan soldier, they dragged me out of the kill zone into a safe area, which we're talking maybe, you know, five or six meters from where the actual blast area. And um, and immediately they started working on me. We had medics, you know, each platoon, we had two units, each unit as a medic. So the medics immediately started working on me. And while that was happening, you know, I, I tried to take images. I, I shot three frames and then, you know, the hand that I was holding the camera just hurt for whatever reason. And I dropped the camera. That hand was not hurt. This hand was hurt. 
the opposite end, my left hand was hurt, but the right hand, which I had in the camera, was not hurt in any way, but it was so painful that I dropped the camera. Um, I asked for a smoke, I had a smoke. Uh, the correspondent <laughs> was with me, Carlotta Gold, which is again one of those amazing uh, journalists. Uh, she's an incredible person, probably the, the best authority in Afghanistan. She's been covering it as long as I have. And uh, she came through the ranks to where I was lying on the ground, and that, you know, I asked for the phone and I called my wife. And as I said, it was 5 a.m. in Jabba when I woke up and I told her that I'd been blown up, but I thought it was going to be okay. And, um, mm. and then, uh, and then I passed the phone to Carlotta so Carlotta could, you know, just keep talking yeah. through it because at that point, you know, I'm getting scary experience, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. You know, it's it all up, you know, there was nothing, it, it wasn't scary. I mean, it was, it, it happened. It happened so quickly. I wasn't, I wasn't surprised that it had happened, you know, so it was, it was what it was, you know. It's so many times I've seen friends or strangers shot and killed right next to me, and I've somehow always managed to to walk away from it. So, I guess my number came up, you know. And the more you play, the more it's going to happen. So, or the more the chances are that it's going to happen. Yeah, so, I'm yeah. going to have to stop you there. Cool. You are an incredible uh, storyteller. You have so many amazing stories to tell. We could speak for three to four hours on this, and I'm sure you could still keep us at the edge of our seats here. Um, very quickly, you've got an exhibition at the moment. That's how we actually um, came onto this called Retrospective. It's at Museum Africa. Yeah. Listen, Museum Africa is free. It is incredible. Zhao, your work's there. Uh, you've only got three um, stages that you're speaking yeah. about, apartheid, Afghanistan, and, and Iraq, if I'm correct. 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 Um, do you want to just uh, quickly give yeah, the details I mean, about that? The show traveled. The, the show was uh, first um, shown in in France, in Pépinot, at the Visa Pule Image, which is an annual photo festival. Last year, it's the biggest in the world. Last year, it was the 25th anniversary, so it was a great honor to be there. I showcased alongside Don McCullen, which is probably one of the greatest war, war photographers, photographers yeah. of, our, of, our, of our, in history, in fact, and still alive. Um, and um, and yeah, so now the show's come home, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to have it shown in South Africa. It's my first show exhibition in South Africa, believe it or not. And um, the opening was last week, Friday, and, um, you know, together with the museum and with the Portuguese consulate, especially Dr. Luisa Fregoso, who's been, she's been the driving force behind this, um, we have, um, yeah, we have the shows up. It was a great opening. Lots of people. Uh, I thank all those who came. I didn't get an opportunity to speak to everybody on the night because it was just too chaotic. But, yeah, and... Um, so yeah, please go along, have a look. Uh, it's uh, graphic content. The images are show the brutality of war in every sense. There are images of decapitated people and all that kind of stuff. So please take that into account if you decide to go. So definitely not for children, but um, but yeah, it's there to educate so people can understand what uh, what other people go through. Those less fortunate. Zhao, you are an absolute living legend. May you long Thank continue you. doing what you do. Um, I really I have so much respect for not only your work, but also the person you are. It is just absolutely wonderful. I've been hanging out with Zhao Silva Thank for the entire hour on cliffcentral.com, an amazing, world-renowned photojournalist. This guy, if you've never seen his work, he is exhibiting at uh, the Museum Africa. It's free. Uh, it is called Retrospective. Go check it out. Uh, we'll be putting us some details on Twitter as well, at Yebo underscore Levy. What is Zhao Silva doing next? We will tell you online for the moment. That is the end of us. And the sex show is next. We'll speak to you next week. Have yourself a lovely weekend.